Welcome to another episode of Mystic Skeptic Radios, um, either Radios of the Unknown or Uncensored. We're um, posting both of these uh, recordings on our YouTube channel if you'd like to join us. Um, last week, we discussed um, Charles Fisher's book, The Eunuch, and uh, it came up during our conversation about the work that he does uh, educating young people uh, in his college about the Holocaust. And, um, you know, he teaches uh, English uh, literature, um, and you can tell us more about it, but um, there's a couple of stories I would like to share with the public about how um, right now, especially with all the stuff going on in the Middle East, it's easy for people to say, well, the Jews are overrepresented in Hollywood, and that's why there's so many Holocaust movies, or they're overrepresented in literature, and that's why there's so many uh, witness and fiction related to the Holocaust, witness stories uh, and fiction. So, um, and then some of the Jewish organizations will say, well, we are interested in genocide all over the world. Um, but then some of the more traditionalist groups, they say, well, if you compare different genocides to the Holocaust, you, you're kind of defeating the the difference like there was a very particular thing that happened during the holocaust and now we hear everything is a holocaust everything is genocide so we would start with that like um from my knowledge of um german um history or german persecution of, of the jews it was uh systematic and uh it was slowly progressing leading to that uh does that come up in your um class like um, why is that a subject uh, in relation to the humanities, uh, as you guys discuss it in your class? Well, the course I teach is <clears throat> called Humanities 150, Memoirs to the Holocaust. And we I have my students read um, five memoirs. Uh, these are stories uh, told by survivors um, of the camps, but also, um, yeah, mostly of the camps. Uh, and they're all kind of classics and well-known, All But My Life by Gerda Weissman Klein. She's a young woman who uh, works as a slave laborer in the in textile factories uh, for, for the greater part of the war. Uh, and of course, then Primo Levi's very famous uh, survival in Auschwitz, which I think is one of the greatest of all the memoirs. Uh, the thing about uh, Primo Levi, and I would say this about uh, Weissman Klein as well, is they're great writers. Uh, uh, yes, they bear witness and give their testimony to the Shoah, the catastrophe, but they, they have a tremendous amount of literary talent to uh, make their story come alive and be very powerful for the reader. We also do the graphic novel by Art Spiegelman, Mouse, uh, volumes one and two. My students uh, particularly enjoy that. The drawings in that graphic novel are very powerful and it helps them visualize uh, what went on in the camps. And of course, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. <clears throat> the thing about the Holocaust, and I'm not in the, in the way that it, it might be in the way that it, you can differentiate it from other mass murderers was I think the scale and the scope of it. Um, when the Nazis got together in the Wannsee conference, uh, uh, they came up with the phrase, the final solution which meant the extirpation, the eradication of all the Jews in the world. Um, and uh, they certainly wanted to uh, wipe them out in Europe, and they came very close to doing that. And it wasn't just the Nazis that were involved. Uh, I mean, I mean, cer certainly there were, I mean, it wasn't just the army and uh, the Wehrmacht um, or the, uh, the SS. Uh, uh, the final solution was enabled by uh, a giant bureaucracy. There were architects and engineers and lawyers, uh, political folks. The, the level of complicity was very, very, very great. Um, and the other thing that kind of boggles the mind, I think, when you contemplate the Holocaust is that it was industrial mass murder. Uh, it was a very modern act of collective violence, railroads, 
um, and uh, work camps. Uh, many of the Jews were enslaved uh, working for uh, German industry and the war effort before they were murdered. Um, it was just such, it was just so massive and so well planned. Uh, um, a number of years ago, uh, I toured uh, Auschwitz with the Holocaust Center for Humanity in Seattle. And we had a wonderful guide. We spent two days there and the guide was, was one of the educators in the museum. And he said something toward the end of our visit that really stuck with me. He says, the more you learn about the Holocaust, the less you understand it. And um, I think that's very true. Um, I consider myself a relative newcomer to the field. I only started teaching this course in 2018. And, um, you know, I've read the bibliographies. I've visited a couple of the camps, seen some of the shooting sites in Warsaw, outside of Warsaw. And um, in uh, in Lithuania, in um, the Baltic area, um, and the more that I've been exposed to what happened uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, uh, the more confused I am. The more I don't understand it. It really it just boggles the mind, in, in part because it was so so big and so cruel. Before we discuss uh, the book Mouse, which is being banned in some areas of the U.S., and, and I have some theories why they're banning it, um, it's interesting that with all the stuff going on, um, a friend of mine sent me the, the the following text, which was very telling and very um, scary. Um, the text is called The Jewish Question in Europe, The Causes, the Effects, the Remedies, uh, and it's from La Civita Católica, Volume 7, uh, written in October. Uh, it was like a like a publication. Um, it was like the last quarter of 1890. So this is a Jesuit um, treatise about how the Jews are the cause for the, the decline of the Catholic Church 100 years ago, almost yeah. 130 years ago. And they have this whole conspiracy about the Masons being uh, created by the Jews to take down the Catholic Church and that any attempt for the Catholic Church to become modern and to understand the world in a, in a more cohesive way was the Jews uh, infiltrating. And they used that that symbol that is used in Nazi propaganda of an octopus that has tentacles and everything. And uh, this person sent it to me because they were worried that the Catholic Church had become too liberal and too um, watered down uh, from the recent things that have happened with the Pope's decisions. And they were and they know I'm Jewish and they were saying, hey, check it out. Uh, and then they and then when I uh, confronted them, they said, oh, well, there there's this thing now where the Pope um, is banning Catholics from becoming Masons. So. We all know that the Masons come from the Jews and the Jews are trying to destroy the Catholic Church. And I just want you to become aware of it. And and I couldn't believe it. And this is someone who's yeah. very well educated and has had um, a religious training that is uh, higher than most people, which uh, usually I assume that people from Latin America or from other countries who have old views on the Jews, especially if they're Catholic, that it comes from pre-Vatican II ideas which are similar to this but as someone who has been exposed to modern uh, movements within the catholic church to embrace other communities and they're still uh, peddling this type of uh, propaganda pre-nazi uh, ideas that the nazis incorporated into their um, yeah. thinking and that they were able to disseminate very easily because there was already the yeah the mentality to accept those kind of things. So as you look at this, um, these texts with your students, do you build a foundation on how magical thinking and conspiratorial thinking were very prevalent in Germany, even though they were very well educated and very cosmopolitan and that, yeah. that gave rise uh, to some of these issues or is it, this is what happened and, and this is how they experienced it. Well, my class is a literature class. We mo we mostly focus on the literary works, the memoirs themselves. 
However, I do have a wonderful book, a, a short history of the Holocaust. It's called War and Genocide. And it's by uh, the scholar Doris L. Bergen. Uh, the subtitle is the history, a short history of the Holocaust. And this is really an excellent uh, beginning text for freshmen and sophomore students. And she has entire sections on the buildup to the Holocaust. Uh, I was talking about my guide at Auschwitz and he says it takes, he made, he, he made a number of statements that really stuck with me. And one of them was, he says it takes about 30 years for a genocide to occur. You have to have the fertile ground. And a lot of that ground is with the propaganda uh, the anti-Semitic slurs, the myths, the tropes of anti-Semitism that are that 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 kind of kind of you know seed the land, uh, so to speak. So when something like collective violence against a minority group occurs, uh, people are kind of prepared and ready for it. And I think one of the unfortunate things about uh, the internet is that so much of that uh, anti-Semitic propaganda that was uh, uh, you know prohibited and banned from public discourse. Uh, and really caused a lot of the anti-Semitism to lie dormant for all these years. Uh, that 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 period of time is ended, and you and you see all that, all those slurs, all those lies, all those myths, all the all that propaganda. It's all back on the internet. And I'm I'm thinking in particular uh, of the site 4chan. 4chan is this image board, uh, public image board, and there's a site, there's a sub uh, group on 4chan called Politically Uncorrect. And you go to you go to that site, and it's just full of anti-Semitism as a matter of course. Uh, and a lot of young men in America right now spend a lot of time on 4chan and they're aware of this stuff and they have no background in, or they have very little background in history. Um, and they don't know much about the Holocaust. And uh, so they just, they, you know, they, they just believe all these things. I mean, I have a, a nephew who, who is always talking about the Masons and he's never really direct about it, but it, 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 it smacks of, of conspiratorial thinking. Right. And I don't, I don't even think he's aware that uh, there is a, um, uh, an anti-Semitic, uh, you know, vibe right behind it. Um, so I think the need for uh, Holocaust education is greater now than ever, at least in my lifetime. And, you know, I take a moderate approach when it comes down to relating uh, the Holocaust or the Shoah to other uh, genocides, because um, there's a there's a Holocaust survivor we're trying to get on the show. And he wrote a book about um, the Christian anti-Semitism that led up to it. But what happens is that um, he was very wise to bring up that the difference between, you know, different ethnic groups fighting and exterminating each other and the Europeans exterminating Jews is that they had this type of disdain as well as admiration for the Jews. And this is something that has been uh, propagated all over the world now, um, whatever way that they have been able to do that, where if they see a Jew walking down the street, they they think the worst of them. And I see that with racism and during the BLM uh, protests, it, uh, it, it came to the forefront to me that it's easy to associate people that, that you don't know that well or that you have uh, preconceived notions about with negative things. But with the Jews, it's not only the negative idea that they're up to no good, it's also that they're too uh, prominent and that whatever, um, and as, as we discussed, you know, if they're involved in, in politics, economics, uh, media, there must be um, something that, that brought that about through some scheme so then they get to control everything. So not only are they uh, subhuman or not uh, valuable members of society, they're also uh, destructive and able to do things um, that other people are not able to do. So does does that um, is that some in the in the memoirs? Do they mention that that they feel singled out not only because as German citizens they were in helpful enough for the economy or they like the theory that Hitler had that it was their fault that the war was lost during World War One, or also that since they were the other, it was easy to pile up on them any kind of vitriol to try to uh, delegitimize de them and um, and dismiss them as people. Well, I mean, there are a lot of factors to anti anti-Semitism. But one of the things that never gets talked about is just pure resentment towards a successful minority group. 
And one of the things that comes clear in the memoirs is just the, the kind of the resentment of working class Poles, working class Germans towards uh, a certain class of prosperous uh, 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 Jewish individual. Uh, there, you know, um, the guards are always, uh, uh, you know, denigrating the Jewish prisoners about uh, the fact that they've never done any hard labor in their life. So when Primo Levi, as a young man, is, you know, doing physical labor at Auschwitz, carrying, you know, big beams in the middle of winter, and he, and he doesn't have any strength, and he's dropping them, and, and he, you know, he's awkward with his work. Uh, they're, they're mocking him for being, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, like a Jewish middle class person who's never really had to work a day in of his a day in his life. You know, he was a university student in chemistry, right, and, and had no construction experience. But there was this kind of resentment there. It's kind of a class resentment, but it's a racial resentment. Um, and then there's the fact that uh, so many people profited uh, off of the Holocaust. You know, when they were driving the Jews from their businesses and their homes, people they all the businesses got taken over by Germans and the homes were taken over by neighbors. Um, so much of the Holocaust was this giant kind of robbery. You know, it wasn't just murder, but it was also theft. And I think uh, resentment was a, played a a big role in that resentment of their success and their wealth. Now, of course, not all Jews were wealthy and successful, right? But that's kind of part of what bigotry does. It, it'll, it'll take one group and, you know, and use that as an emblem for the, you know, entire, you know, Jewish population. But yeah, yeah, resentment is a huge part of it, success, because there are there are many tremendously successful Jewish folks, in part because the culture values education and hard work. Right. Or certain parts of the Jewish culture place a tremendous amount of value on study and education and and, you know, discipline. And, you know, so, of course, they're going to be successful. Right. Well, and that's why it's important to put everything within context. So if for 2000 years you're relegated to certain areas, you're going to become uh, a specialist on it. If all you can do is sell jewels. Then you become a you know the best jeweler there is, or all you can do is practice medicine with your own people, and then they pull you to come help whenever um, the pope or somebody needs help. Then it seems like you have extra knowledge that no one else does, and that was one of the accusations that we had to deal with the devil, and that's why we were able to cure people. Um, and then if you're relegated to uh, houses of study uh, that are religious, religious or legal. Uh, then you're you're going to create the best lawyers and the and the less uh, legal minds. So, uh, but in a time like this where um, genocide and ethnic cleansing are buzzwords in relation to what's going on, uh, people need to be aware that there was a, again a sy systemic approach to these things, and it was not only uh, erasing them from from the European culture; it was also uh, dismissing them as people. It was also uh, robbing them of whatever they were able to uh, acquire. Uh, it was slave labor. It was, um, you know, not contaminating the population. So uh, even if the, the same uh, accusation can be made for other groups at this time, I believe that it has to have all those elements for someone to be considered uh, Nazi-like, which is very easy to be thrown around nowadays. But let's move on to the the graphic novel mouse and i've only um read parts of it and i'm very um, familiar with the artwork and the symbolism that it uses um you know now there's a backlash against ethnic studies um and there's even ethnic studies that are um anti-jewish or anti-zionist and some of uh, it's um in their versions uh in california and other places but in the south the book Mouse has been questioned as too uh, insensitive towards whites or too aggressive in its approach. And I remember um, reading the segment where he his um, uh, main character goes into uh, the concentration camp and he's put next to uh, a Polish priest. And since the, um, the graphic novel depicts different people as different animals, the author decided to uh, portray 
the priest as a pig. And then when he was asked, why did you do that? Uh, you know, it's only uh, cats and mice. And he said, well, the Polish uh, people, especially the religious folks, were the ones that sold us out. So I wanted to portray them in the most um, yeah. unfavorable way. Do you think that, that uh, whites in the South uh, found that uh, problematic and that's why they, they're trying to ban the book? Or is there other reasons you might consider? You know, I'm not that I mean, I, I saw the headlines when Mouse got banned and I was I was never really clear on why they got rid of it. Um, but, yeah, that is one kind of what we call problematic aspects of the graphic novel is that um, each ethnicity or race was depicted as a single animal. Right. So the Germans are cats and the Jews are mice. The Americans are dogs. Right. The French are frogs. And then the Poles, unfortunately for them, were depicted as pigs. Yeah. And I can understand that making some make, I can understand that making some Polish people uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, um, Spiegelman's point about the Poles selling the Jews out is well taken. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, um, you know, um, complicity. Uh, in Poland, uh, in the Holocaust, not all Poles were complicit in it. Uh, many, many, a number of them stood up and protected and saved uh, uh, individual Jews. But, but, but there was quite a, there was a lot. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in Poland at the time, and and I don't know if Spiegelman regretted his choice or not. But, but I can see that being controversial. Um, you know, and the, the Americans are portrayed as as heroes. Uh, the dogs right um so and you know and for the most part they're portrayed as as black as white um there's also a moment in um i think it's in volume two of the book uh because because the graphic novel kind of toggles back and forth between the present where where, where Artie, the the narrator uh and soon-to-be writer is interviewing his father about his um experiences uh as a prisoner and, th and these are in the last couple of years of his dad's life and, and the father is, has been traumatized by his experience as a tremendously anxious man and very difficult to live with. And so much of the novel is about already kind of coming to terms with his difficult relationship with his father. Um, um, and at one point, uh, you know, uh, they're uh, in the Catskill uh, Mountains uh, vacationing in the summertime and already and his wife pick up an African-American hitchhiker and his father, uh, you know, kind of has a meltdown a racist meltdown like why did you pick this guy up you know you know you know that he's going to you know rob us and and one of spiegelman's point is that you know the victim in this case his father can also be the victimizer right and that you and that uh that just because you were a victim doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you were 100 percent morally pure right uh and that's one of the things that primo levy gets at in his memoir too uh, a survival in Auschwitz is really a look at the various ways the prisoners made it, and when, when you discover to survive was an, uh, was more if you were a survivor more than more more than often you had to compromise some of your morality, and, and uh, uh, Primo Levi uh, takes a very hard moral look at his fellow prisoners, and, and um, you could argue that he judges them for you know selling each other out over scraps of food or extra rations that kind of thing um so it's a very complicated thing and again i don't know why they would ban mouse it's, it's such a profound uh graphic novel uh and portrays what happened with uh, with moral nuance and complexity right not all the germans are bad you know uh, not all the jews are good it's it's a real mi a mixed picture and i don't know if you're familiar with the the movie um an american tale where um they have a mouse uh feeble mousekowitz who uh comes to america uh fleeing uh, pogroms in russia and then uh, his big uh story um you know uh, one liner is there's no cats in 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 america and because they were being uh, killed by cats in Russia. So a cat is a symbol of an anti-Semite. And then the first thing that happens when he lands in New York is that he starts getting chased by a, by a cat. So I've, I've been trying to document anti-Semitism in, in the U.S. And a Mormon friend of mine who did a study of that, he says that that doesn't really exist, that 
is usually paranoid Jews who assume that everybody's an anti-Semite because of experiences they've had historically. But I went to the, um, there's a museum of uh, Southern Jewish heritage in New Orleans, and they had a, an image of a, a Jew that was hung uh, sometime in the 1700s uh, for a false accusation, similar to uh, the Dreyfus affair. So um, when people read this, uh, all these memoirs, is it detached from modern day events and from American, um, you know, either religious or ethnic um, discrimination? Or do you tie it to tie it in that um, people are capable of dismissing other groups? You mentioned having a racist uh, thoughts towards African-Americans. Um, have you ever tried to apply it to how people feel about uh, Middle Easterns, about uh, Latinos or other people as you guys go through these books? Uh, you know, generally, that's not my approach. Um, you have to decide how you're going to teach these texts. And I, I focus on close reading each individual work. Um, and I think what happens in the course of reading these five memoirs is that my students make those connections themselves. So if you be, if, if you show them the patterns of bigotry and prejudice, anti-Semitism, um, uh, and how those ideas can lead to um, violence, they begin to make those connections themselves. And um, we also bring in a number of outside speakers, as I mentioned in our last conversation. Um, Seattle is fortunate enough to have the Holocaust Center for Humanity. It's a museum dedicated to the Holocaust. And they have a wonderful speakers bureau and um, Everett Community College, where I teach. We've been working with them for about 20 years. And so every every year in the spring, we bring uh, three or four uh, survivors of the Holocaust to tell their stories. And often these survivors will make those connections for my students. For example, last spring, we had... Uh, a son of a survivor, his father had passed, his father had been in Auschwitz. And at the end of his talk, he said, you know, uh, I'm an immigrant, you know, I was born abroad in Germany. Uh, 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 and after my parents immigrated to the US, they created a, a real good life for themselves and our family. And I know what it's like to, you know, come to this country and not speak the language and feel uh, 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 alienated at school and have to make that adjustment. Um, uh, but my parents made that sacrifice for me, and, you know, and, and this guy, it was a, a, a very successful uh, assistant to the attorney general in Washington state. And uh, when his talk was over, a number of my students who are first generation Americans, their parents had immigrated from one from Nepal, one from Mexico, they were in tears. And they came up to the speaker and they thanked him for their talk because it really spoke to their own experience, their own immigrant experience. And it he offered to them encouragement. And and there were there were these two young women. They said, We're gonna go home right now and and kiss and hug our parents and tell them how much we love them for their sacrifice. Uh, so I guess my point is, is that is that connections to the present are made both good and bad. Uh, but again, I myself don't make those direct connections. I try not to politicize my classroom too much, um, but, but I, I like to teach in a way that the lessons are there for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, it was interesting. Another anecdote that I have is that um, I we had a, a Holocaust survivor come to my school when I was taking my first introduction to Judaism class. And I went up to her and asked her, um, do you think that the way that uh, immigrants are treated in the U.S. is similar to the way that Jews were treated in Europe? Because, you know, there was always the idea that they weren't um, faithful, patriotic people because they were a, a separate people. Yeah. And she said, well, the difference is that we were citizens. And, and I took it the wrong way. Maybe she meant it, you know, just historically speaking, you know, we were Germans, but we were seen as the other by the rest of the Germans. But this idea that you can choose where you're born or that there's something deficient in you because you were born somewhere else and you're trying to get safety over here is something that um, uh, another difference that people would make. They would say, well, they were minding their own business in Germany, Lithuania, um, wherever else uh, I, back 
I know there's a lot of Jews now in Ukraine. Uh, and then whoever didn't like them try to dismiss their legitimacy as members of that society. Um, whatever the case, it's still scapegoating. It's still dismissing people's humanity because of um, their looks, their uh, socioeconomic status, their religion, their background. So all those things have to be taken into consideration. Um, in the next part of the of our show, I would like to discuss... Um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, um, because that's been a very powerful uh, book in, in my life. And if I ever have a chance to to make a film, I would like to make a film of uh, how he um, discussed being able to find hope in the midst of suffering. But um, again, why um, for you, uh, I know last time we talked about growing up Christian and having more of a mill road approach to scriptures um why do you think it's important for the holocaust to be addressed in literature and um is it part of the human experience is it part of world history or is it um just a very recent catastrophe that, that should not be forgotten it's all those things um it is it is part of history uh you know 19 you know the 1940s were not that long ago right you know my parents were were were, were children to the 1940s. My grandparents lived through it. Really wasn't that you know, wasn't that long ago. So it's part of history. Um, and but but it, it it also speaks to the individual human experience, right? Um, when you read the testimonies of these memoir writers, uh, you, you're exposed to human cruelty, right? Uh, kind of organized and systemic human cruelty. And I think it's important for our students to know what we are capable of. It's not just the Germans, right? Or any of, you know, or, or any of the bad guys in history that uh, as a human being, uh, was it Solzhenitsyn that said that we have the line of good and evil that runs, runs right down through all of us, right? We're all, we're all a mix of good and bad and right. And uh, we want to, we want to choose uh, our course in life very carefully. Um, and one of the questions I ask my students is that, well, you know, uh, you know, if you were born during this time, you know, where would you be? Would you be a perpetrator? Would you be a victim? Would you be a bystander? Would you be somehow a beneficiary or would you be a hero? Right. They're all these. These are the five categories that Doris Bergman outlines in her book, um, War and Genocide. Right. That everybody was in one of those categories, perpetrator, victim, uh, bystander, beneficiary or hero. Right. And uh, and I want my students kind of kind of think about uh, their own lives, right, and make a connection between the uh, you know what happened during the show uh, to what's going on right now in the first twenty five years, the first quarter of the twenty first century. You know, is there anything in your life where you might occupy one of those categories? Right. So you know, studying the Holocaust has this kind of macro importance from a historical level, but it also has this kind of micro importance, a micro importance, where you where you kind of, you know, shine the moral light on your own life and kind of figure out is there any area in my life where I'm, you know, making the wrong choice uh, when it comes to the de dehumanization of a, another group. Well, let's talk about that because during the the Black Lives Matter um, movement, which eventually I came to support, um, there was this idea that uh, white folks or people who can pass as white, um, you know, most of my family were Spanish descendants, so sometimes uh, we can kind of you know wiggle our way through American culture, and sometimes we're singled out. But um, that you're either uh, a supporter of racism an enabler racism, uh, you know, silence is violence kind of thing, or you are um, a supporter of anti-racism, an anti-racist, uh, an emancipator. And they made it these very clear lines where everybody needed to fit in one. And I've said from day one, because of my background, that, uh, of course, you shouldn't be an enabler or uh, someone who um, benefits and continues to benefit from racism and use it for your own uh, well-being. But this idea that uh, you have to take a hard line and you have yeah. to be outspoken felt uh, forced, especially if people hadn't considered it as, um, you know, something to to be part of. So 
the the hard part is that of course um just like heschel said not everybody is guilty but everybody responsible uh do you think that as moderate folks should we should um encourage people to um to look deeper into these issues um because um it does matter if we see ourselves as not part of the problem like i always tell people uh do not feel guilty for being white feel guilty for uh perpetuating um white privilege um in whatever way but but to just condemn a group of people assuming that they are all uh racist or dismissive of other yeah. races that's right. what i was afraid of during uh the, the last yeah. few years yeah, I think I think the conversation has become oversimplified, the moral conversation. Anytime you find yourself in these Manichaean categories of absolute good and absolute evil, hobbits and orcs, right? I always uh, I always pause before that. And so part of the I think the problem with you're either a racist or an anti-racist, that discourse is it's just too oversimplified. Right. You're if you're on one side, you're all good. And if you're on the other side, you're all bad. And that's just not the case uh, in my experience with uh, uh, when I'm looking at human behavior. Right. We're, we're all a mix of everything. Right. You can be both a perpetrator and a victim, uh, depending on the day and your mood and circumstances. Right. I think we're much more morally complex beings than just either good or evil. And so that kind of conversation is always dangerous. The other thing that I found alarming is anytime you essentialize a group of people, you know, the Jews are all one thing. White people are all this. Black people are all that. Right. That's very dangerous territory. Um, that kind of a, that kind of racial essentialism. Um, and so I'm not a big fan of that. And I, I do talk about that with my students, right? You know, you can't just uh, sum up uh, entire groups from a moral and political standpoint based on the color of their skin. And so I think some of the some of the conversation in the last couple of years has kind of uh, wandered into wandered into some dangerous territory, because if you're going to if you're going to make generalization about Jews or make generalizations about whites, well, then it will cause your enemies to to, to make unflattering general generalizations about, but you know, uh, blacks or um, you know Latinos or anything like that, right? You know, group X is is this way or group Y is that way. Um, I think that's dangerous. And real quick, uh, is there any uh, romanticizing? Because I think. When when people say, well, there's too much Holocaust talk and too much uh, Jewish victimhood, they what they're pretty much saying is that uh, they're romanticizing Jews as, you know, oh, the, yeah. the eternal victim. Uh, right. Is that possible? Is it possible that uh, a group has been persecuted or mistreated sure. for too long right. and then um, nobody cares or they care too much? And I can say the same thing about uh, competition, uh, victimhood competition, where one group will say, well, you guys only suffered, you know, whatever, 10 years of, of hatred in, in Germany and Poland. We've been suffering 400, 2,000, 3,000 years. So it becomes a, a, a very unhealthy uh, discourse. Uh, we'll take that up on the next side of the break. And I appreciate you being here with us. Okay, sounds good. So we were discussing how um, there's been a lot of um, challenges when, in relation to the victimization of Jews or any other group in history. Um, as as you read those memoirs, has anybody ever said, um, well, what about the memoirs of um, the immigrant experience or of, um, you know, people who underwent uh, Jim Crow or slavery? Yeah. Um, what about uh, black and 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 LGBTQI members of um, of Germany and Poland or other countries in Europe that were sent to concentration camps? Has anybody brought up other groups who were persecuted around that time? Well, when we talk about the Holocaust, we certainly talk about uh, the various groups that were put to death alongside the Jews, uh, the Roma, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you know. Uh, the, homosexual uh, homosexuals uh, folks in the LTGBQ community etc so we do talk about that in the course um but but 
the course is on the Holocaust. And if they are interested in the African-American experience, uh, we do teach a course at Everett on African-American literature, a great course, as a matter of fact. Um, it should be offered more than it is, but it's a very good course. Um, and it, I would say in general, most of the people in my department are progressives, left-leaning, and much of their material uh, that they teach involves, uh, you know, uh, the power disparities and inequalities uh, in, in America regarding various minority communities. So we, we pretty much have that stuff covered in my department. And, and, and that's a good thing, I believe. Um, so you can do both. So speaking of Viktor Frankl and his uh, great book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, um, tell us about um, how how do you break down uh, his concepts? Uh, it was difficult for me to read the second part of his book where he talks about his therapeutic uh, approach, but the the narrative about how he was, um, he had a chance to leave um, uh, the area where he lived, but he decided to stay because he felt like God was telling him to support his parents. Then he gets thrown in the concentration camp uh, away from, um, I believe it was his wife, but he uses uh, the remembrance of their romantic story as a, a way to keep himself going. And it showed a lot of random uh, situations that, that allowed for him to survive and then finding out that his wife did not make it. Um, how do you... Um, apply that to um, the reader's um, experience of this book that um, do you talk about hope? Do you talk about finding meaning in the midst of suffering? Um, what's your approach to address that book? I mean, that's the real strength of the book is about finding uh, meaning in the midst of suffering. Um, you know, uh, one of his lessons is it's important to kind of just slow down and observe the world, right? You could be on a particularly awful work detail in the camp but there would be a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset that he could look and notice and be present to that um and i think that's a powerful lesson that uh that, that life is very difficult even if you're not in a work camp right uh, uh and being persecuted by your enemies uh life can still be a struggle and there's a lot of pain just built into the uh the fact that we're human beings, that are that, that we live, that we're born, we live, and we die, right? There is a lot of suffering in our lives. And Frankel offers a, a, a very kind of positive way to find the good in the midst of the struggle. And one of those is to be, uh, to be thankful for uh, the people that you love in your life, right? Um, th there's something kind of stoic about his approach, right? Um, it reminds me of that quote from Hamlet, there's nothing good... Or, or bad in itself, but thinking makes it so, right? And cognitive uh, behavioral therapy offers the same lesson for us, that uh, it's important to try to reframe your experience uh, in the most positive light. Uh, uh, I used to be very against that when I was a younger man. I felt that was a denial of uh, reality, which is often absurd and cruel. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've realized it's important to be thankful for all the good things in your life, because it could have been otherwise. If you have a, if you, if you've had the opportunity to love and be engaged and married and marry like Frankel did, you know, that's a gift, a gift from God, if you're a believer. Right. Um, and it could have been otherwise. Right. I think that's the thing that I think about when I look back at the good things that have happened to me, they didn't have to happen. Right. It, it could have been otherwise. I, I could have been born, uh, uh, my, I, I, two very good parents, for example, that, it, it, that could have been otherwise, right? I had two loving parents. I had wonderful grandparents that could have been otherwise. Right. And so when I'm looking back on my life and if I have a tendency towards sadness, grief, grief or regret or, uh, depression, then, you know, there's been a lot of really good things that have happened. Right. I'm, I'm not a pure victim, right? Uh, I, I, I there've been a number of gifts that I've been given, uh, by God or the universe or fate, whatever you want to call it. And it could have been otherwise. And I think that's Frankel's message as well, right? Now, that's hard to imagine that he could have that attitude in the hellscape that it, that was the extermination camp Auschwitz, right? But uh, he claims that he did have that attitude and that uh, there's something heroic about that, I think. And 
Uh, it's one of the reasons that book is such an inspiration uh, to its readership. If Frankel could find goodness, if he could observe and notice goodness and beauty um, in an extermination camp, well, we should be able to do it in our everyday lives as well. Well, there's a, another element to that. And, and I, again, it's, it's not to diminish his uh, ability to overcome that, but um, I went to see another uh, Holocaust uh, victim that um, was being interviewed. And uh, the interviewer was uh, kind of uh, difficult to swallow her approach because she was she kept on trying to pin her on, was there something different about you than the other victims? something that gave you hope that was heroic, that was yeah. you know, innately, um, you know, not giving up kind of thing. And and to me, that was unfair because if someone gives up in the in the midst of, of extermination, that is a normal reaction. And then if someone uh, ends up not doing it, uh, you can give them props for their valor, but you can't make that uh, value judgment that one person is more capable than the other. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to ask you is, in, in any of these books, do they try to humanize their uh, enemies, as you like to call them? Because uh, part of the, the progressive attitude, especially uh, towards victims, uh, has become to the forefront that if you are not able to forgive, if you're not able to uh, accept that we are all capable of evil, then there's something wrong with you. And this... Uh, it, personally has been a, a, a thorn on, on my family side in relation to um, people who have committed uh, crimes or or have done harm to our loved ones. And they'll say, well, you know, um, until you uh, put yourself in their shoes, unless, unless you uh, grow to accept that um, people are capable of anything, uh, you're the one who's, who's creating problems. And if you had an opportunity to... Uh, to make peace with them, to love on them, to send them letters in jail or to go visit them uh, wherever they ended up after they died, that uh, that you should be the bigger person. Um, so uh, I have a friend that um, the, the story is, is that the her grandmother uh, fell in love with a guard at, um, at a camp and they ended up um, having a family so was there good Germans that were forced to um, mistreat the Jews and they were just following the orders like they usually claim? Or was everybody uh, debased and uh, completely given over to evil? And that's why they never stood up and they never fought back while they were being pushed to uh, exterminate a, that group of people. That's a complicated question. And, and again, you have the whole spectrum there. A, certain, a small percentage of the guards were chosen because they were sociopathic and sadistic. And they would be very good guards for that reason. But there's only a, there's only a certain percentage of sociopaths and sadists in, you know, in any given population. So there was a limit there, right? Um, a number of the memoirs, memoirs talk about that the system was designed to, to dehumanize everybody involved with it, right? So, um, you know, the guards were dehumanizing the prisoners, but by but but here's the here's the kind of paradox in the act of dehumanizing another person, you yourself become dehumanized. And that's one of uh, the messages that my students take from reading these memoirs. Right. That. And you, and you and you see the same message in uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography of uh, his uh, time as a slave in the Southern plantations. He said, and, and, and this is a, a very good parallel, I think, that the slaveholders themselves were dehumanized uh, by dehumanizing the slaves through their cruelty and their violence. And, you know, it put them in this place uh, where they themselves were degraded morally. Um, and I think that's it, that, that, that lesson, that same lesson can be found in these Holocaust memoirs, right? That the guards themselves were, uh, by their very positions, right, degraded and dehumanized by the things that were required of them. And that's not to say that there weren't good people among them. Right. Um, 
in Gerder Weissman, Weissman Klein's memoir, All But My Life, um, her life was saved by one of her German um, guards, right? The woman that was in a leadership position in the textile factory that she worked at, there was going to be a selection uh, the next day and Gerda was in the infirmary sick. And, and as everybody knows, a selection is when uh, the SS would come in and they would, you know, mark the health or unhealth of uh, the worker slaves. And if they seemed unhealthy, they would send them to the camp, right? The extermination camps and be the gas chambers for them. And one of uh, Gerda's German um, overseers, right, said, you can't lie in bed sick here. We have a selection tomorrow. And she made sure she was on the factory floor that day. Uh, and looking as healthy as possible. And she uh, essentially saved Goethe's life. And, and Goethe, in her memoir, uh, notes the irony of this, that one of her German German overlords, right, preserved her existence. Um, so, yeah, there's a real mix, right, a real variety of responses uh, to that situation. And finally, in your work as a, as a, Professor and uh, author, have you come across uh, memoirs from police officers, military personnel, or other types of people in authority where the culture has become so uh, dehumanizing that they regret some of their behavior? Because, you know, one of the accusations that has been thrown around right now with the war in Gaza is that uh, the Israeli soldiers are are becoming um, on inhuman in the in the treatment of of their captives and and uh, people they're fighting or the innocent people involved and and one thing that i use to combat that and i might not be right is that if you're if you're raised to believe that everybody's a terrorist just like a police officer who um maybe through uh you know uh situations they have experience or uh some of the the training they've received that, you know, everybody's a criminal or it's better for your life to be saved than the per people you're dealing with, that they would go overboard and start hurting people and then asking questions later. Have you come across uh, that type of mentality in a, in a micro uh, community versus a whole nation choosing to, uh, to be like that? And that's what I always try to do is like, let's differentiate between, um, you know, governments, um, you know, people that work for the government, people who are politically inclined to certain ideas and sometimes it's conspiracies, uh, individuals, civilians, uh, people who are uh, radicalized. Let's differentiate everyone so we don't uh, easily um, make those mistakes of scapegoating, of attacking, of demonizing other groups. Have you seen that um, in some experiments, they said that it's easy to become a tormentor when you yeah. feel justified or you have uh, a free reign over others. Uh, have you seen anybody repent of that type of behavior in their memoirs or that they ended up being capos or, um, you know, they complicit with their their captors because of, of survival, as you were mentioning earlier? I haven't, but that doesn't mean anything. I haven't read as widely as I should have. Um, have you heard of the book Ordinary Men? No, can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's one of the great uh, recent histories of the Holocaust that has been written, Ordinary Men. And it follows a group of order police. These were middle-class German police officers uh, that were um, assigned to work with the Einsengruppen. And the Einsengruppen were the famous murder squads that followed the Wehrmacht. In, uh, when they invaded Poland and then eventually when they uh, uh, attacked Russia. And uh, the Eisengrupp were responsible for the extermination of the Jewish populations of the, these newly conquered towns and cities in Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and then eventually Russia. And the uh, ordinary man tells the story of these kind of average guys. They were not Nazi zealots or SS fanatics. Right. Uh, many of them weren't even members of the party. 
they were fathers um, and uh, uh, husbands and sons. And it talks about um, how uh, they were um, forced to participate um, in these mass executions of Jewish civilians, you know, women and children and old folks, um, and how many of them uh, uh, recoiled from that request. Uh, uh, they, some of them literally couldn't do it. Uh, um, uh, and many of them uh, were given a lot of alcohol to help them kind of get through that experience. Uh, because the thing about uh, this situation, they call it the Holocaust by bullets, right? So, uh, when, when the Holocaust began, it didn't start with the extermination camps and the gas chambers. You know, it began with these murder squads, the Eisengruppen, and it involved one individual, you know, shooting another individual, you know, in the back of the head or the neck. And that was, uh, you know, up close and messy and very difficult for some of these guys. Uh, and many of them required a tremendous amount of alcohol to kind of get through the experience. Um, and it was because of that, the inefficiency, essentially, of that approach that uh, the Germans decided to, well, we need to, we, we need to do something on a more collective industrial scale. Hence the camps, extermination camps were born. And there were like, like five or six of these death camps that were in Poland. Right. But anyway, getting back to ordinary men, uh, uh, you know, a number of them rebelled against uh, their orders and then were reassigned to other uh, squads, but uh, many did not and became kind of acculturated to this kind of mass murder of civilians. And the book is very good in showing that kind of step-by-step -step transformation, right? From being a, you know, a middle-class husband and father at the beginning of the war effort, and you end uh, as a, uh, you know, war criminal. And the, and the book kind of shows that, that transformation. Thank it's highly regarded, and I recommend it. Thank you for sharing that resource. Uh, another resource for our listeners is um, the book called Hitler's Willing Executioners, which is the other side of that coin, uh, Ordinary Germans and the Holocaust. And in that book, um, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen talks about how uh, through some of the archives that he was able to find, uh, the myth of people not knowing that the Holocaust was happening okay. is actually uh, dispelled. And, and that's the saddest part is that People uh, knew that something was going down and oh, yes. and they were all uh, involved in one way or another. And like you said, it was uh, and everybody benefited somehow either by uh, expropriating their their land, their um, their items of wealth or uh, just um, giving them a sense of pride that uh, they got rid of the problem. And and that's why I think um it is important to learn about the Holocaust and, and genocide and mass extermination because of how political groups and extremist folks use similar um uh, verbiage to uh to pin the problems of society on a group or another. And and we're seeing that uh stirring up again like it did in in leading up to 2016. Um as um just as, as a member of society, um uh, Mr. Uh, Fisher, do you feel that um, we're kind of uh, heading into a place of, uh, like you were saying, good versus bad, uh, bad uh, mentality, almost Star Wars, like, um, you know, you're either super good or super bad, but now you get to pick which side you're on and to demonize one side or the other that um, our culture is becoming so divided that uh, yeah. no one is no one is willing to, to give people benefit of the doubt or like we were talking in the last show uh be somewhere in the gray uh as we all know that humans are very complex well yeah the political polarization in this country right now is pretty alarming if you know if you if you know some ardent democrats or some ardent republic republicans you know that they uh that they despite each of these groups despise one another and uh demonize one another right um and they don't seem to have much in common um, so, you know, I find that both depressing and alarming, uh, since we're coming up to another election here shortly, and it looks like it's going to be a replay of 2016, quite possibly. Um, 
Yeah. I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I I would like to see a return to moderation, right? I, I, I find myself in the in the political middle in some respects. Um, you know, politics is poison, right? And and there's a business to politics, it seems to me, right? 